Well, good morning, Fondren Church. Y'all are more awake than nine o'clock. Everybody's had their coffee. Um, it's good to be here to talk to y'all this morning. Robert had um, contacted me a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, would you consider we're, we're starting off this new uh, sermon series on the soul, and uh, wouldn't it be cool if you did the first one? And I had to look and see what the title was, and it was The Soul and Depression, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I'm, I'm humbled to be here before you today to talk about that, and I really think the Lord's got something for all of us, whether you've personally dealt with depression, whether you have someone in your family or your friends, uh, it really touches us all, as we'll see, and, and I'm looking forward to sort of diving into Scripture. But this is going to be an amazing sermon series on the soul. Um, really looking forward to that for the next seven weeks starting today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning before we dive into Scripture. God, just um, I thank you for being here for your presence, Lord, as we've just sung about. And uh, corporately, God, that your presence does need to go through. Uh, before us. Lord, it, it means nothing if you are not here in this moment. And God, this is a difficult subject for us to talk about this morning of depression and some of the harder topics that interact with our soul. God, I pray that you would be loud, that I would be quiet, that your words would resound through what is said, and um, that God, you would indwell this moment and speak to each and every one of us in the way that you would want us uh, to hear you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, what is the soul? That is a difficult question. One of the first things I asked Robert as I said, hey, look, there's so many different definitions of the soul. I want to be sure that I'm sort of around where you are with that uh, because it's a difficult word to define. Now, in the South, we got a couple of different things like for the soul, right? We got soul food. We got the godfather of soul, James Brown, right, my son? And... Uh, we have, uh, even uh, Don Cornelius gave us Soul Train. So we've got different definitions of what soul is. But what does the soul mean to us? And it's really hard to just gather together everything. This is a quote from Dallas Willard. He says, The soul, that part of us that encompasses and organizes the whole person, interrelating all the other dimensions of self so that they form one person functioning in the flow of life. So that's a long definition, it's sort of the whole definition sort of flows. But think about that. It's everything that you think, that you experience, everything about you that makes you that individual. So it's an encompassing word that sort of brings together in your personal sphere everything about you, mind, body, how you think, your will. Still very hard to sort of grasp that concept of what our souls really are, but it's replete in all of Scripture, right? So it's in the Old Testament, New Testament. We're going to be mainly in the Old Testament today, so I thought we'd look at one of the Hebrew words for soul, and that's nephesh. So that means life, living being, self, person, desire, appetite, emotion, passion. One of the things I like about the Hebrew language is very Eastern language so that you, it encompasses lots of different things. Words can mean different things in different contexts. But think about that. All those things are the things that I desire the most really define my soul of who I am and everything about me. And we'll see 
Particularly the psalmist captured this as he tries to relate to God about what's happening in his life. I do want to preempt this by saying, since we're talking about the soul, but we're also talking about how it interacts with every aspect of life, and today we're going to be concentrating on depression. I am a physician. I do treat people with depression. I'm not going to dwell totally on clinical depression today or sort of pigeonhole this sermon into that because I believe God has a word for all of us on this. But it is a big issue, and it is a very sensitive issue. It's a sensitive issue individually if you're dealing with it personally or if you have dealt with it, someone in your family. You may have even lost someone to depression through suicide or through other things. It's a very difficult subject to deal with, but it's one in which all of us, I think, including the the church as a whole, should really be at the forefront of interacting with people, with interacting with ourselves when we are at that point of depression. And what better place to go than Scripture to see what it sees? So we're going to read Psalm 42. I'm going to read it for us. You read on the screen or with your Bible that you have in front of you. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him my salvation, and my God. This is a tough psalm. It's probably not this kind of psalm that you go to on a day and you're like, you know what, I need a word from God today. I need a positive thing. Let's go to the psalms. And you open up and you see Psalm 42 and you're like, let's go to another one. It's not one that once you start reading it, you're like, I really want to dwell there, right? We tend not to do that. Certainly, Most of uh, sort of the feel-good Christian church today does not preach on this a whole lot, but it's there. And the sons of Korah have written this today. We didn't have that in the preamble, but basically they have laid this out before us as a template, as something that's personal to this individual person, but also something that God wants us to interact with as we deal with depression, as we deal with these feelings that they've put down so that we can feel with them and deal with that with our God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Again, it's a sensitive uh, issue. And 
for today, I really want us to think about this not as sort of clinical depression and then feeling bad, but a whole spectrum. So everything from, you know what, I've had something happen to me, maybe it's a loss of a spouse, maybe it was uh, you really felt like God had a direction for you to go in, and then all of a sudden the rug is just pulled out from underneath you, all the way up to severe depression where you're at the brink of taking your own life. Let's talk about all of that, because really that's where our soul interacts with this. So it's a description of how we feel all the way up through full-blown depression. And let's look a little bit at the impact of this. So this is just some numbers. I'm not going to bore you with statistics today, but I thought I'd pull a couple of things. So this is, in the U.S., about 17.3 million adults. That's over the age 18. About 7%, a little over 7% of the U.S. population has said, and this is by survey, so it's probably a little bit higher than this, that they are clinically depressed. And the highest group, and this is a little staggering to me, if you think about the group of people age-wise who should have the most optimism, the most forward force in their life, should be 18 to 25, but they're actually one of the highest groups. They are the highest group in America, 18 to 25-year-olds, 13% that are clinically depressed. This is at that other end of the spectrum, self-reported data, so it's probably a little bit higher than that. It's a lot of people. I didn't put up to 300 million people worldwide that are right now depressed. 300 million. It's a lot. And think about the loss. Think about if you yourself have experienced depression, which in a group this size you have, some of you. Maybe you're being treated for it right now. Maybe you're in the midst of it. Maybe you have it, but you haven't really let anybody know that you need help. This is for you. That's a lot of people. You're not alone. If we look at it from a prescription standpoint, so this is a little bit older, so 2011, 2014, greater than 12 years old, so I broadened it out a little bit. 17 point, excuse me, 12.7 percent of anti of, of this age group have taken antidepressants in the last month, and a quarter of them had been taking them for more than 10 years. It's a lot of people. So depression affects us. It's here. The scope of it is a lot. And the church is not immune. We're right there with the rest of America in dealing with depression. It's a big deal with a destructive impact, whether that impact is loss of life, loss of relationships, loss of jobs, loss of your relationships with other people in your family over time. All kinds of things that can be affected by depression. It's a huge deal that we need to deal with in the church. And as a Christian, we have to ask ourselves, how do we approach this? Because I can tell you how the church approaches it most of the time, and that's by neglect. Right? Or worse than neglect, shame. There must be something wrong with that person. Why are they depressed? If they had more faith, maybe they wouldn't be depressed. If they walk closer to God, maybe they wouldn't be depressed. I don't really believe in depression. I don't think it's out there. That's been our sin. So hopefully today we can take a different approach to that. But there are some questions. So these are some of the questions. And actually, Robert and I were sort of going back and forth on email and text and talking to each other about, you know, how, what are some of the things that are the, the biggest questions that we as Christians have 
Here's the first. Is it real? These are just some of them. There's other ones. You know, is it real? Is it a real thing? Well, I've just given you the statistics. It's a real thing. I think most people these days would say, yeah, it's real. But I talked to some, some people in the earlier service that said, you know what? When I was younger, I really thought about that. I really thought that my mom or my dad, who dealt with depression all their life, that it really wasn't a big deal because I saw they had all these resources, but yet I felt like they were weak in some way. It's a real thing. It's not something made up. Is it a disease or a symptom of something else? Yes and yes. Of course, right? Is it something that you should think of in the same way as somebody has hypertension or diabetes? That's one of the first things we teach medical students about depression is that it is something that you should frame in your mind, not as something special, but something that's exactly the same so you can start treating it, start diagnosing it more. Is it a symptom of something else? Yeah, certainly. You can have other psychiatric conditions that are going on that put you at risk for depression. Maybe you have genetic uh, predilection for depression. Maybe uh, substance abuse, whether that be alcohol or other substances, maybe that be, may be contributing to depression. Actually, there's a large number of medications that for side effects have depression as one of their side effects. So yeah, there's plenty of other things where depression is really the symptom, the tip of the iceberg, a destructive tip of the iceberg, but below that, there's a lot of things that may be causing it. Is it caused by a chemical imbalance? Now, this is an interesting question, right? Because some people will say, I don't really buy this whole chemical imbalance thing in the brain. You know, like some people are more predisposed to it than not. I just don't get that. So a little bit, of, I apologize, but a little bit of neurobiology. I'm gonna, I thought about this analogy. It makes sense to me. Basically, your neurons in your brain, they're wonderful things. God created our brains just incredible tissue and organ that just does all kinds of things that allow us to interact with our environment, to protect ourselves from different things, to interact with other people so that we can interact emotionally as emotional beings. Our brains are wonderful, and here's how they work. you got all these neurons, and they like to talk to each other, right? So they reach out and they shake each other's hand, but they don't touch each other. They get really close. And then the way they talk to each other once they reach out to one another is through a language that's made up of a vocabulary called neurotransmitters. So some people in their brains, just like some of you, have a much richer vocabulary. Some people like to just say one or two word sentences, right? Yes, no, uh. All those laugh. The people who were like that did not laugh, by the way. It was other people. <laughs> some of you have rich vocabulary. Some of you don't. Same thing with our brain. So some people have those neurotransmitters, that language that those neurons reach out and talk to one another with. They have a lot more of those. And some people, not as much. So that if you have a stressor, you have an event, you have loss of life or loss of job or something happens, or it could be everything's going great, you don't have that vocabulary to talk. Those neurons can't talk to each other. They can't do their job. And yes, you can be at risk for depression. External circumstances don't always predict who is going to have depression and who is not. We'll see that in a minute with somebody from the Old Testament. So yeah, it can be caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. Does treating it with medications and counseling negate the power of God? Now, I'm a physician, so if you ask me this, I actually got schooled, quotation marks, by a patient of mine uh, a couple of months ago. I saw her, and she, her daughter had been diagnosed with cancer. 
And I just asked her, how's your daughter doing? And she said, uh, you know, with her cancer. And she said, oh, she doesn't have cancer. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I was confused. I thought last time I saw you, you mentioned that she had cancer. And she said, well, you can't do that. You can't say that she had cancer because that robs the Holy Spirit of working in her life. So you have to say that she never had cancer. And then the Holy Spirit can, can cure her of the cancer that she never had. So I was just totally confused at that point. I'm like, I have no clue what you're saying. But we sometimes treat that, right? I'm, I feel 100% called to be a physician, to treat people, to teach. I, that's, that's my calling. And I don't apologize for prescribing medication that I think is going to improve somebody's life. And I do think there's plenty of other Christian physicians, some of them in this congregation right now, You know, they do what they do, and they feel like that is an extension of the healing power of God through knowledge and training. That's not inconsequential things. And it's certainly, miracles happen. I've seen them in patients. I don't negate that either. Like, you know, if God heals you, that's awesome. That is so cool. But I think He works in the same kind of way with training in the medical profession. So I think... Is treating with medications or counseling, does that negate the power of God? No, it doesn't. And that's actually how the brain works too, particularly if you talk about counseling. Like You can remold those neurons. They can learn different things to do because it's sort of a plastic organ. We used to think, you got the brain, you got it, it doesn't change. It changes all of your life. So those are some questions about depression. A lot of different, there's probably others, many others that you have. But I really think today that there are really three big perspectives we can have when we talk about the soul as it interacts with depression. The first one is no one is immune. No one is immune. Some of you may think, well, that'll never happen to me. I'm a really strong person. So I could take each and every one of you and I could put you in a prison camp somewhere around the world in a deep, dark hole for 10, 15, 20 years. Just about every one of you deprive you of of sleep, deprive you of food, and I could probably create a situation where you would be depressed. Maybe there's a couple of people in here that might be able to not get depressed in that situation. But nobody's immune. And I'm not saying that's going to happen to you. But you're also not immune because of the people around you. There's lots of different people that have had depression that you're going to interact with. And again, as the church, how do we do that? How do we be the hands and the feet of Jesus in doing these things toward other people in a, in a gracious way. No one is immune. What about in the Bible? So i got a list of some people up here. Y'all remember these people? Job. Now, Van was very gracious in his introduction, but he said one thing, like I've been like, something like I was, my heart's always been for God, and like I'm a sinner, man. I've been saved by grace. But um, Job. I don't think this has ever happened with, in, in my case. I don't think Satan's ever approached God and God and Satan had a discussion about me and God said, have you considered my servant Jimmy? He's upright in every way and he's perfect. And he's done it. Well, he's not perfect, but he's done everything. He follows me wholeheartedly, right? No, probably not. Job, yes. God bragged on Job to Satan. That's a big deal, right? And Satan says, you know what? I'll make a deal with you. Take stuff away from him. And he will totally reject you, God. 
It's all about the stuff. It's all about the prestige. It's all about what's around him. And then God agrees for his righteous servant to be subjected to this. All the stuff taken away from him, from him traumatically, his family killed, except his wife. His wife tells him just to curse God and die, which I thought maybe that's part of Satan's plan. It's like, you know, she's just going to shove that knife into him. Curse God and die. Thank you, my beloved bride. And then his three friends come. What do they say? They're the church, right? And they say, you've done something bad. Come on, come clean, Job, and God will restore you. Job rebukes them, and then he does something that's interesting. He complains to God. I would like an advocate to speak my case, to plead my case before the Lord. I want to, con- con- uh, I would, I want to tell my case before Him. Now, he gets restored right at the end of the story. People are like, yeah, but Job, it's a great ending. It's a happy ending. You know, if you lose a child and you have more children after that, they don't replace the children you've lost. You think Job, who loved his kids, he sacrificed on their behalf, by the way. That was a big deal. He, he served as their father, their priest, their king, provision for them. And they were taken away. He had other kids at the end of the story, but doesn't replace the ones he lost. It's a hard lesson, isn't it? He's not immune. He was righteous, not immune. Elijah. Remember we said sometimes your situation doesn't always predict who is going to have depression, who is not. Elijah goes up against all these prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel, and God vindicates him and all these people are killed. And he should be at the top of his game, right? So he is the prophet of God. And he's scared to death of one woman. Jezebel runs away, hides, tells God, I should just be killed right now. Does that sound like symptoms of depression? Maybe. David and the psalmist. Let's just take David. Shepherd boy, low life, nothing. Shepherds couldn't even present to uh, testify in court, by the way. That's how they were viewed in society. Shepherd boy, opportunity to fight Goliath, kills Goliath, the hero of the nation, taken in by the king, anointed to be the king by the prophet, has a great best friend in Jonathan. And yet the king tries to kill him Later on, the king, Saul, and Jonathan, he mourns their deaths. Turmoil in his family. The baby that he had with Bathsheba dies, and his servants are worried about him because they think he's going to take his life. Does that sound like depression? If the people around you think that you might take your life? Absalom, when Absalom is killed. He mourns for Absalom and the servants said the same thing. They're worried about it. David has a life that is fashioned around depression. Or at least the risk factors for that. But look at what comes out in the Psalms. Oh, how rich a life. A man after God's own heart. He feels that. The other Psalmists, the sons of Korah are one. Moses, there's others that write that have written Psalms. They pour out their life to them, through them, about what's going on. 
Jeremiah, remember him? So he has a prophetic word to the people of Israel, and he says, look, your sin is stacking up against you. The Lord wants you to repent from that. But God tells him in the prophetic message, they're not going to listen to you. He's called the weeping prophet. Because after he delivered his message in Jeremiah, tradition has it that he was in a cave when he wrote Lamentations overlooking the city of Jerusalem as it's ransacked, as it's burnt down, as its people are killed and taken over. And Lamentations is just a, an account of the emotional weight of that. And he weeps and weeps and weeps. Now, this last one may be surprising to you. You're like, Jesus wasn't depressed. I'm not saying any of these guys were depressed because I don't know. I wasn't there, but I'm saying what we have in Scripture. Isaiah 53. He was a man of sorrows. Sorrows. He weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over their sin. In the garden, he cries, as we saw with our Easter services, he cries to the point, and he's under so much uh, emotional stress that drops of blood drip as sweat from him. Could you imagine knowing all that was going to happen to you the whole time, that you are the Son of God, but yet you're going to be betrayed? Everybody's going to leave you? How would that feel? And then on the cross, he quotes David, or maybe David prophetically is looking forward to Jesus in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are those the words of the downcast, of the mourning, of depression? Yeah. If it can happen to them, particularly Jesus, the weight, all these guys before Jesus and us, everything, all those emotional weights were put on Him. I mean, that alone. I mean, how do you bear that? We say, well, He was God, but He was man too. You see that. Thank God He was man too. If they're not immune, you're not immune, and I'm not immune to the effects of depression in our life. So that's the first point or perspective we should have. Nobody's immune. The second point is lament is the true path through depression to God. So we have to understand what lament is. So lament is complaining to God. Did you know that's okay? A lot of smiles out there. Some of you are like, wait a minute. I thought that was a sin. Where? Complaint to God. I just told you we had a book in the Old Testament that's called Lamentations. Complaints, right? The key there is the direction. It's not complaints about God. It's complaints to God. Right? Lament is the true path to God through depression. Let's look at this scripture from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2, uh, through a little bit in 3. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, 
and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Does that seem a little counterintuitive to you? So basically what God is asking Ezekiel to do is to bring a hard word to Israel. He's saying, you know what, take this to my people because I want them to know what it's like to lament their sin and all the mourning and woe. I want them to know what that feels like to lament it. But did you see what it tasted like? Sweet as honey. Do you think of lament that way? I mean, I don't normally. When you're complaining to God about something, does it taste sweet? There's something to that. There's something to that as a prescription for our life when things are not going well, particularly if it's something as dramatic as depression. It doesn't need to be sealed up where it can fester and become an abscess of destruction in our life. It should be opened up to others, to the church, but also to God. There, as the old song said, there is a balm in Gilead, and his name is Jesus. So lament is a way through it. You, you notice it's, it's through it, though. It's through it. You have to go through it. Job had to go through it. Jeremiah had to go through it. They had to see it. Jesus had to go through it, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured even death. The joy that was set before him, he endured death. The, fir- the third thing... No one is immune. Lament is the true path through it, through depression to God. God will put an end to it. God will put an end to it. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians. This is Paul writing, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So they were worried. They were grieving about those who had died in the faith. And while they knew that they would be with the Lord, they still felt the loss, right? And you still feel that emptiness. But Paul says there's a difference there. And that difference is hope. The writer of Hebrews says that hope is like an anchor to our soul. Your soul. God will put an end to it. This is from Revelation 21, 3-5. And I heard with a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. There will be an end to it, depression. For you individually, Days, weeks, months, decades, a whole lifetime. But for the believer, there will be an end to it. God may grant you freedom from it. Soon, it may come back. Lament is the way through it. But God is the end of it. What did we just celebrate? We celebrated Easter. Like death, where is your sting? He nailed a nail in that coffin so that yes, you would still have every single one of us in here. Are, you know, death is defeated, but who's going to die in this room? Barring Jesus coming back, everybody. Everybody. But He has put an end to it. Praise God, He's put an end to it. 
You know, God is our hope. The last line, if you really look back at Psalm 42 and 43, they're, they're sort of bookends of each other. And they talk about, why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. That hope that Paul talks about, the hope that we can have through Revelation, that is the thing that we should hang our hat on. That's the thing that we should have gutsy drive to say again and again that God is my hope in this. There's a temporality to depression. Now, its means may be different. Now, you may be totally delivered from depression by a combination of prayer, by medication, by counseling, by friends and family, by situations that are different, by choices that you make are different. But never should it be somebody else's role, yours and my role, to say to somebody, why can't you just change? Because you can't. You can't. That's the by nature of depression. It's not something you can pull yourself by your bootstraps out of something. You just don't have the means to do that. Something has to happen externally. There will be a restoration. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as they're making their way. This is our, for, with our tradition, uh, last uh, Sunday of the month, we usually have um, communion. And I think particularly today in thinking about that, this is a celebration of what the Lord has done for us, for His payment for our sin, for our suffering, for everything that's been put on us. And if you're helping with the elements, you can come up to at this time. We're going to ask you in a second. We don't have any stipulations on who can take the elements of the Lord's Supper besides this. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, then you're welcome to come. The Scriptures say to examine yourselves, to examine your heart, to take these with the right mindset, with the right heart before the Lord, so that when you take a piece of the bread that represents His body broken for us as a payment for our sin and dip it in the juice, which is a symbol of the blood that was shed for us, that we are remembering Christ's death and burial and resurrection until He comes again. But think about this too as you come. If you are dealing with depression, don't wait to tell somebody. That by, by its nature, you're hesitant. You feel hopeless, worthless, useless. That's part of depression. Tell somebody. If you think somebody's dealing with depression, approach them about it, please. There's no telling what a, a small word that you give them could be. A cool drink of water, as Mother Teresa says, that in the Lord's name has a million blessings following it. Take that gutsy step to do that and reach out for help. We're here to help you as a church. Honor Church wants to be that. We can point you in the direction if you need medical care, if you need emotional care, whatever. We want to be able to help you with that today. So as we come to take this, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. This is actually, I'm going to read a prayer from a gentleman um, who knew about suffering. Um, his name was George Dawson. George was the poster child of illiteracy um, for a long time in this previous century. So George was born in 1898. He was the grandson and great-grandson of former slaves. 
did not read all of his life, had a very traumatic life, lost touch of his family because he was finding work, always hid the fact that he couldn't read as best he could because he was ashamed of it, got married, had a family, provided for them. When he retired at 65, still didn't pursue it. When he was 98 years old, somebody knocked on his door as part of an adult education program and said, is there any way we could help you do anything? Are there any skills that you can need at 98? And George fought back that initial impulse to say no because he said, you know what? What if God has allowed me to live to 98 years old because he knows how much I want to read? So he took that step of faith, learned how to read. Not only that, he was working on his GED when he died at 103. And he wrote this for us today in a time when he was down. That'll be our prayer before we take communion. So bow with me as I read this. Grant unto us, Almighty God, in a time of sore distress, the comfort of the forgiveness of our sins. In time of darkness, give us blessed hope. In time of sickness of body, give us quiet courage. And when the heart is bowed down and the soul is very heavy and life is a burden and pleasure a weariness and the sun is too bright and life is too mirthful, then may that spirit, the spirit of the comforter come upon us and after our darkness, may there be the clear shining of the heavenly light. And so being uplifted again by thy mercy, we may pass on through this our mortal life with quiet courage, patient hope, and unshaken trust, hoping through thy loving kindness and tender mercy to be delivered from death into the large life of these eternal years. Hear us of thy mercy through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.